Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Crisis support for survivors of domestic violence has long been a priority for governments and organisations in the sector. What has not been recognised as widely, however, is the importance of providing ongoing support to women and children after they have left crisis accommodation. Women, women reported that having to rebuild their lives without support, often in a new location, had a profound impact on their mental health and their capacity to move forward and heal. Helping to support women and children as they rebuild their lives is this week's guest, Carolyn Robinson. Carolyn is an experienced educator and the founder of Beyond DV, a Brisbane-based charity established in 2017 after her daughter's domestic violence experience. Through her close work with DV survivors, Carolyn identifies gaps in existing services and creates innovative recovering programs to meet the needs of families across Brisbane. In 2020, Beyond DV opened their first centre, a place that survivors call their second home. Beyond DV and Carolyn were inducted into the Queensland Government Domestic and Family Violence Prevention Honour Roll in 2020. Stay tuned as I chat with Carolyn about her experience in establishing Beyond DV and providing a space where DV survivors could build support networks with each other whilst accessing a range of support programs and services. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Pebble in the Pond. With me today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Mrs. Carolyn Robinson. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. It's a pleasure. Listen, we're keen to hear all about the amazing things that you're up to with Beyond DV since you founded it. But let's start with your background professionally. What have you been up to? I'm actually an educator. So I started teaching back in 1988 I've been a teacher, I've been a school administrator, I worked for some time in a school down in Logan as a deputy principal and that was probably my first taste of working with really vulnerable families and uh, actually ended up being the most enjoyable part of my career. What made you want to work with kids? Interestingly, my father. He was an incredible educator and a true inspiration to me and I would sit in on his classes When I was in high school and I finished school for the year early, I'd go and sit in on some of his classes and I just loved the way that he inspired young people and uh, really made a difference in lives and it's all I ever wanted to be. And so for people listening that don't know Logan, tell us a little bit about Logan and the demographics there. Logan is a lower socioeconomic area. 
in Brisbane, uh, the particular school that I was at has had quite a few challenges with children and behaviour difficulties, learning difficulties over the years. And the wonderful thing about being there, though, was that the families were so open to help and so open to new ideas. And the the team of teachers and administrators working in the school were just so cohesive. They supported each other so well. And it was just such an eye-opening experience for me. It helped me to really develop my skills as a teacher and draw on ideas, strategies that I'd never thought of before. But the families were just wonderful. I really, really enjoyed my time there. So how long were you there in, at the Logan School? I was there for six years. Six years, okay. And then what did you, what did you get up to? I then had to come back closer to home. One of my daughters was quite unwell and uh, I had to leave my work acting as a deputy down there and just had to return to the classroom to be closer to her, to support her in her illness. But I always have very fond memories of my time down there. And I stayed teaching then at a a school in Brisbane until uh, everything, I guess, took a very strange, it was a very strange turn of events that happened and then led me to where I am now. You have two daughters? I do. Okay. How is it, without worrying about the teacher side of things, as a parent, how challenging is that in today's society growing up with all the different challenges that are in front of us as parents? It's not easy. And I guess, you know, for me as a teacher, what I found really hard was that my kids didn't want to listen to me, even though I, I felt I knew quite a bit being a teacher. They needed to hear a lot of the, those life lessons and, and advice from other people, not me. But, you know, we were always a very, very close family. I made a conscious decision not to have the girls at the schools that I was teaching at. I wanted them to be able to make their own way at their own school and uh, have mum there as a parent, not as a teacher. Mm. And so how did life take a turn for you and the family that brought you into the DV space? Yeah, well, in 2017, my daughter got into a relationship with a gentleman who we actually never met. It was a very quick relationship. She'd been in a very controlling relationship previously for about 18 months. And when she'd left that one, she then started to date another gentleman and Thankfully, after about three months, she saw some signs of unhealthy relationship behaviour and uh, she chose to leave. But even though she did leave the relationship, she did experience domestic violence subsequently and ended up in court, ended up, uh, yeah, injured. But uh, we had to support her through that. Looking back on, because you, I mean, you said you never met him. No. It would have been hard for you to see any signs of that. Or, or was it? I guess from the previous relationship, uh, you know, I came to the realisation that if we push too hard in saying, look, this doesn't look right, this doesn't sound right, we, we don't think this person's the right kind of person for you, it didn't work. So we just sort of sat back more and just let things evolve naturally. And, you know, to be honest, I did have a gut feeling early on, but I just wasn't willing to say anything. We just kept the lines of communication open and I think that's probably what I learned again from from a previous relationship where we didn't really see her much over 18 months so this time I wanted to make sure that the lines of communication were open she knew we would always be there and I think when women are in relationships that aren't healthy they really need to make the decision themselves to leave 
If you try and force somebody to leave, they can become very resentful. You do run the risk of them actually becoming closer to the person who may be abusing them. And so I just, from my own experience, I just felt that that was the best way to handle things. And when she was ready to leave, we were there for her. Wow. I mean, that would have been hard to surrender some of that because as a parent, and like you mentioned before, sometimes we're too close to our kids and they won't they'll listen. Someone can say that someone else can say the same thing, but because sometimes we're too close to it, they'll listen to somebody else instead of us. And so you found that with that first relationship, the 18 month one, where you were trying to, you know, have your input and give some insights into what you're seeing, it actually probably pushed her further away as opposed to then just letting it happen in front. Exactly. And I did find that after the first relationship, after everything did break down and she had left, she said to me, mum, it had to be my decision. So, you know, I had that in the back of my mind when she got involved in this next relationship, which just didn't sit well with me that no matter what I think, I just need to sit back. I need to let her experience it. I need to let her use her own judgment because then using her own judgment, it sits better with her that she's made a decision that was hers. She had ownership of it. I mean, it's tough enough to do it where, you know, kids, loved ones are going to hurt themselves, falling off a bike, jumping off something. You're like, no, no. But sometimes you need to let them experience it to go through it. But, I mean, this is a whole different game, isn't it? This, I don't want to call it a game, but, I mean, it's a whole different level to be surrendering that in this situation. It really is. And even in our work now, I so often get women contacting me to tell me about their daughters being in abusive relationships and them feeling so helpless. And all I can do is say, I get where you're coming from. That was me. My advice, given my experience, is just maintain those lines of communication. Do not let them be cut off. Mm. That, is, that is just so critical. And they may not want to hear what you have to say. You still need to be there. We all know the statistics show that it takes an average of seven times for a woman to leave an abusive relationship permanently. You want to make sure you're there on that seventh time or however long it takes. You want to make sure you're there and they know that uh, they can come to you when they do make that final decision. So how did the experience in in the relationship, she made the decision to leave, obviously still had abuse that was being directed towards her in court. How did this then redirect your attention and focus to what you were doing? Well, I had to take some time off teaching. Obviously, I had a really, really supportive boss, which I was very grateful for, my principal. And I accompanied her to court. And I was stunned. I knew nothing really about domestic violence. And interestingly, until this second situation, I never had, it had never occurred to me that the first relationship she'd been in was abusive. I just thought, oh, this is a really controlling man here. And it wasn't until I learnt more about domestic violence and the fact that it doesn't have to be physical that I realised, oh, this poor kid's actually been in two abusive relationships. This is, this is tough. But going to court, I guess I was overwhelmed by the enormity of the, what was before me. I could not believe how many women were there. And they were from all walks of life, all cultures, all ages. What struck me was that most of them were there on their own. They had no support person. Often when I'd go to court, I was the only support person there. Mm. And I just, I had no idea. And uh, I guess going back week after week after week, it really started me thinking about, you know, how could I use my expertise to help these families in some small way? 
And obviously being in education for so many years, I thought, you know, is there something I can do for the kids? In my years teaching, I never remember ever seeing any advocacy around kids who might have been through domestic violence. And so that was really what sparked my initial idea of um, creating a charity. So let's talk about that then. So you, I mean, there's a lot of passionate people doing a lot of amazing things in this sector. Tell us what challenges did you face and where did the inspiration come from for you to know what to do? That was the thing. Where do we start? I, I mean, I'm a teacher. How do I start a charity? I think that was the first thing. Um, I've got an extremely supportive husband. He had been in the government sector for 27 years, so he had a lot of experience with working with not-for-profits in his time in government. And, you know, to be able to sit down with him and, and put the idea across and uh, he actually said, yeah, let's go for it. But then it was a case of trying to find out, well, how do we actually set up a charity? So calling on some people that we knew, some, some lawyers and other people who, who came across our path just at the right time. And so we did set up the charity from scratch, um, established a company, Limited by Guarantee, got our board together and put in all of the application uh, to be registered as a charity with the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission. And I'll never forget actually getting a phone call just before Christmas in 2017. So this has all happened. May 2017 was when we went through court. Yeah. And uh, this was just before Christmas 2017. The analyst who'd been looking at our application rang me to congratulate me and say that it had been approved and we were registered. And she actually said, normally it takes about four months to go through, but yours has gone through really quickly. You know, we were really happy with what you put through and wished me all the best and best Christmas present we could have ever got. But I think what was really important for us in the beginning is making sure that we weren't going to be reinventing the wheel. So we didn't want to do anything that was already being done and done well. And we didn't want to step on anybody's toes either as these newcomers, you know, (laughs) wanting to come in and change what was already going on. So, you know, there were conversations that were had between ourselves and uh, the existing DV organisations and it became really clear quite quickly that a lot of the focus was on crisis, you know, getting women out of domestic violence situations and getting them safe. Yeah. And there wasn't a lot being done around recovery. So we thought, well, maybe that's where we can focus our energies. You know, we know our daughter came out and she, you know... (laughs) It really impacted her and she really had to rebuild her life and it wasn't easy and, you know, it impacted for quite a length of time too. So um, it wasn't something that was just, you know, you're out of the DV relationship, you've got a DVO, everything's fine. No, there's so much more to it than that. So that's where we decided we would focus our energy as a a charity. And Carolyn, am I right by assuming that she was also lucky because she had a a support network around her compared to probably some others that don't have that firstly but then secondly the impact is not only on on them but other family members and friends right yeah yeah true and then that's where you know looking in court and seeing all of those women on their own I couldn't understand why but it wasn't until I actually started working with women I realized they were so scared for their parents and their family's safety the you know their family members who may come to court with them that was the reason why they went on their own a lot of the time So, yes, my daughter, you know, she was extremely grateful that uh, we were there for her. She could come back and live with us for a time and we could make sure that she was safe. But, you know, it turned her world upside down. She had to change jobs. She had to get a job over the other side of town because of the fear of him knowing where she was. And, you know, we we got her a personal alarm. It was always that looking over her shoulder, just never quite knowing 
what to expect because you just don't know. You know, men who perpetrate abuse on women, they can be really unpredictable. Before we move into Beyond EV and, and where that's heading and what you've been up to with that, just a quick update. Is your daughter going well as she she's navigated a way avoiding, you know, the perpetrator that hasn't any other altercations, hopefully? Yes and no. Yes, she's personally going really, really well. She's married now we're oh. to, a, to a great guy and she's got a little baby boy. That's so great. things are... Things have improved dramatically for her and, uh, you know, even on her wedding day, she actually gave me a gift and a card that said, thank you for reminding me of what I truly deserved, Yeah. you know, and reminding her of her worth. You know, that's really positive. I mean, she still is impacted by, I guess, the experience. She still has nightmares. She still is scared. We, we just never know, as I say, with, with abusers when they might pop up again on the radar and yeah, I yeah. can't go into any great detail, but, you know, there have yeah. been road bumps there along the way and we've just had to meet those as they've come up and things are going well now, which is great. Good honour. Uh, I mean, congratulations for having a, a grandchild as well. I mean, that would be exciting as well, so well done on that. So tell us, with Beyond DV, tell us, you went, was it the trip to America that really sort of set the foundations on what direction you were going in? Well, interestingly, when we first started out, we only had two programs. That was all we were intending to run, our Bright Start program where obviously I had a couple of other teachers on the board and we thought, you know, we can help families when they've got to relocate their children to new schools after domestic violence and we can teach them, or sorry, we can work with the schools and, and help them to understand the specific needs of these children who've been impacted by trauma and make sure that it's a positive experience for them. And then we also started our timeout workshops, which is interestingly something I did down in Logan probably 25 years ago, running personal development and confidence building workshops for women in the community just out of the TAFE at Logan. And uh, I resurrected those workshops and rejigged them a bit to suit the clientele. And we started holding those uh, workshops for our DV survivors. And it was a very gentle way of getting women to start to engage with our organisation. Sometimes it was the first time they'd been out of their home for months and they'd come, they'd meet with other survivors, they'd, they'd do skincare, makeup, hair care, goal setting, assertiveness training, yoga, healthy life habits. It was just that very, very gentle way of saying, you know what, you're allowed to take some time out for yourself and look after yourself now, you are worthy and we got some wonderful sponsors on board. Good Price Pharmacy Warehouse uh, donated tens of thousand dollars worth of um, beauty products for our oh. women. Stefan would come and uh, his team would come and work with the women with the hair. And just even the growth in those women from, you know, in the four weeks that we would run that program was incredible. And they'd have before and after shots. They couldn't believe it themselves. So that was really the second program and we thought, well, that's fantastic, you know, these women are feeling good about themselves. But then we thought, what do we do now? We can't just let them go. So then we created the extra timeout morning teas, which every week the women come together again and meet. And uh, we were doing this at, an, at, at another organisation's venue because we had no home. And these women loved getting together. We'd have workshops each time they met as well so that it was something educational in it for them too. But then I sort of, talking to the women, I guess, and being a teacher for 30 years, I guess I prided myself on always listening to what kids in the class needed, identifying that each child had specific needs, specific ways of learning, and we always gearing my teaching towards the individual needs. And so we took that approach then with our families and the women would tell us what they needed and we'd look 
around to see if there were other organisations or services who could meet those needs. But mm. um, a lot of the time we couldn't find exactly what they were wanting. So we would create our own programs. And with that then I guess came a bit of a logistical issue. You know, we don't have a home. Well, how are we going to do this? And the other side of it too was that women were constantly telling us that they were getting so frustrated at how difficult it was to access services and they'd be travelling all over Brisbane to go to from one service to the next, um, having to often drag their children along with them, having to retell their story time after time, being re-traumatised. And it was just all too hard for them. It was just adding to the stress that they were already feeling. And that's when I started thinking, there's got to be a better way to do this. Surely we could have services in one place and mm. women could just come here. And I did actually mention it. I was involved in a, in a domestic violence advisory committee with the local member at Greenslopes. And I was talking about this idea that I had. And one fellow there had actually worked for another council. And he'd said, oh, we've set up something like that in mental health where all these services came together and we, we worked together. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. And as, it would, as, as things would pan out, I actually ended up um, somehow or other coming across an organisation in the United States that ran this multi-agency model of service delivery. And uh, I was just uh, looking on their Facebook page after they came across my newsfeed and I saw that they were running an international conference over in San Diego. And uh, the trouble was, though, that was happening in six weeks' time. Wow. And uh, I mean, I'm, nev I'm never one to shy away from a challenge. And I just looked at that and thought, you know what, I reckon we could go over there. And so I had two other uh, staff members at the time. And, you know, obviously we didn't, you know, we, we didn't have any funding. We, we were fully uh, volunteer, 100% volunteer based for the first two years of operation. And so we all called on our own resources to fund our trip over to the US. And my husband, because I wasn't earning any um, wage, we used his bonus from work and uh, we headed over there and it was uh, really for us life-changing as an organisation because we got to hear from all of these centre managers of these family justice centres in uh, the United States and there are about 45 across the United States and the government has put a huge amount of money into them. Wow. Yeah, it really, really incredible and they, they really form an alliance and they work very, very closely together and I just love that model of collaboration. But we heard from all these different centre managers about... I guess each of their centres, and obviously, as I love, all of the centres were individualised and, you know, they, they really focused on what the needs of that particular community were. They spoke to us about how they set the centres up, what the challenges they faced, the benefits of the centres, all of those kinds of things. There were so many learnings. And what I really noticed too was that most of the centres were crisis-based. So, it, you know, in one centre they would have police officers, uh, lawyers, nurses, social workers, uh, housing, but there, there wasn't a lot of recovery-type um, uh, services there. They were just starting to move to that. They were just coming to that realisation that, well, we can help them at crisis, but what happens after that? And so that's where they were, they were just starting to set up like little op shops of clothing, places where women could come and train or do employment readiness, that type of thing. And yeah. that's what we were already starting to do back in Australia. So that was fantastic. We thought, okay, this is the way we need to go. We went back to Australia more committed than ever that we were going to try and find our own space and set up something like this. And so when we got back, we started looking around and just by chance came across a local Brisbane City Council building that was empty. And I contacted the council. They said it was going uh, for tender for a lease. 
and there were about 51 groups that went through the inspection day wow. and about 31 applied and uh, thankfully we actually won that tender for the lease. Wow. I mean, it's I'm sure, and I'm sure there's way more to it than that, but I mean, it sounds like You've definitely gone over there. You saw you saw the you've seen the model that works over there in the states. Did it make you want to also try and do crisis and recovery, or are you guys just sticking to recovery? Yeah, well, there's there's no need for us to do crisis because yeah. we've already got government funded organisations doing crisis and doing it well. Mm. So you know, there's no point in, in in us trying to compete with them. We felt it was just best to put our energies into the recovery stage because nobody was really doing that. Yeah. And I guess the thing that you, you've got to remember with recovery too is that it's long term. Mm. So a lot of those uh, funded organisations, they can have the women working with them for, you know, 12 weeks or so. And then, you know, once they feel the women are at a safe stage, then the books are closed and the women are on their own. And that's really the, that part where sometimes it just gets too difficult to try and move to a new community, get your kids established in a new yeah. school, get yourself a new job. And, you know, sadly, that has been when some women have said, well, you know what, it's easier to be in the abusive relationship than it is trying to build a new life for myself. So we try and stop that from yeah. happening. What a great gap that you're trying to close there. I mean, it's it's critical. And like you said, you identified the opportunity there to go in and try and create something that's really meaningful and that will last and help people get on their feet after they go through the crisis and, and escape the relationship that they were in. Do you also do any any funding or any is it do you offer financial support is there that capacity as well So for us I guess working with women over almost 4 years now we realized that there were five pillars of recovery which I've named them that we feel need to be addressed well if uh, women are going to have optimal recovery after domestic and family violence so we're talking health housing legal financial and social all those areas need to be addressed. And so we set about, I guess, as an organisation, trying to target other organisations, services, partners who will come on board to meet the needs in each of those five pillars of recovery. And for us, I guess, in, in more recent times, we've decided to really focus on the financial rebuilding pillar because we realise that that has a real flow-on effect to so many of the other pillars of recovery as well, like being able to meet legal costs or be able to afford to go to access health support and housing. So we uh, started a new program called Pathways to Hope, which was funded by the Brisbane City Council. And that actually allows the women, once they've done our initial workshops, to access financial counselling, goal setting, career mentoring, domestic violence counselling, employment, an employment coordinator, training opportunities as well. We run Cert 3 courses from our centre we just had a 13 women do barista training last week. We've got another group of women doing retail training in the new year as a Cert 3. We've had women go through education support training Cert 3 at our centre. And we're also um, just uh, just finalising and we'll be launching in the new year two social enterprises that will run through the charity as well. And we've also got some incredible partnerships developing with uh, corporate organisations who are employing our women. We actually had three of our women just employed by one of those organisations last week. Oh, wow. Which that's was incredible. Right. Yeah, really incredible. Are you finding there's been really good support from other organisations to, to help out? 
I must say Brisbane City Council have been incredible. If not for them, we wouldn't be operating. We we work with a lot of other organisations now, uh, community organisations who refer their women to us and want to work with us, which is fantastic. And we are getting a lot, a lot more corporates on board now too. They want to be a part of the journey of these women as well. It's really about getting them understanding the barriers that might present to a woman who's been through domestic violence, getting back into the workforce, rebuilding their lives. And if we can find corporate organisations that you know, are willing to be understanding of those barriers and uh, be supportive of these women, then uh, they're going to change lives. And that's that's really the exciting things for, thing for us. We just um, a couple of weeks ago had uh, what we called our first milestone recognition morning tea. And that was really to acknowledge that out of probably the 200 women that are with us at the moment. And given, as I said, we never close the books on a woman. So some of the women have been with us since since the beginning. And we don't see them much anymore around the centre. They don't need to come anymore because things are going so well for them. But they'll drop their children at our youth group. We have a very large youth program for kids impacted by domestic violence as well. And so these women will come and drop the kids at youth group and we just have a quick catch up with them. And we thought we should be acknowledging these women and their achievements because they are going to be the inspiration for new women coming into the organisation. And we worked out there's about 43 women who we say have achieved milestone three. We've set these milestones now mm. for the women as part of our Pathways to Hope program. Milestone one being job ready or enrolling in a course, so it's quite achievable. It just shows a commitment to moving forward. Milestone two is completing a short course or is securing employment. And milestone three, as a guide, I mean, obviously it's, it's different for every woman, but as a guide is, you know, maintaining employment for six months or finishing your course and getting employment. And so we worked out there's about 43 women who were already at that milestone. It's even more since. It's about 50 women now, just even in the last month. And so we actually acknowledged 13 of those women and heard their stories. And that was so powerful for the new women in our organisation to hear. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, it does it make you wonder sometimes where these women would have gone had they not had that service available? Well, I guess I don't even have to think that because they tell me that. And they're very, very open about that. I guess we're so lucky that we get to see see this happen before our eyes and to see women who, you know, for example, I had one mum, she came to us during COVID, so she came via our online support group. We established that during COVID last year because we knew we weren't go be, going to be able to have any face-to-face meetings with our mums and we knew that they were going to struggle at home with their kids alone. And uh, we've got about 150 women in that online support group now. It's highly secure. I'm the only one that can admit women to it. But this mum came to us during COVID. I met her for the first time when we opened up our centre and had our first morning tea. She hadn't left her house in months. Wow. She's very open, had not left in months. And she just came up, hugged me and cried. Then she did our workshops where we did the hair care, skincare, makeup, really built mm. up a confidence. She then enrolled in a Cert 3 teacher aid course, finished that in record time, did placement at a school this year got more hours of work at another school where she's so loved and respected and she's actually just finished her Cert 4 course as well and is, you know, looking to buy a home for her family. And she said, if, I, if you had told me, you know, a year or two ago that this would be my life, we would not have believed you. It's stories like that that just keep you going? Oh, most definitely. Because I guess, you know, I look at my own daughter and, and to see how far she's come now and, and how happy she is and how, how much she's enjoying life, enjoying being a mum. I just think every woman deserves that. And just because you've had a really horrible time, a horrific time in the past, that does not dictate your future. You can still have a wonderful, productive, 
enjoyable, happy life ahead. And that's what we want women to see now. And I think what we're trying as an organisation to focus on now are those, yes, we know there's the really horrible stories and we need to hear those as well because we need this to stop. But we also need to see hear those stories of, I guess, triumph so that a woman who might still be in an abusive relationship who may be thinking that this is just going to be too hard. If I try and get out, I'm, I'm just, I'm yeah. not going to make it. If they hear the stories of these women who have rebuilt their lives from horrific circumstances and rebuilt them incredibly, then maybe, just maybe, they, that will give them the courage to make that decision to leave. How do you promote, advertise this for women to come in? Like, how do they hear about you? Yeah. Well, we've, we've been lucky in the last 12 months or so. We've just by chance ended up getting a fair bit of media coverage locally but also nationally. And uh, each time we've we've had national cover- coverage, we've actually been inundated with people from all around wanting to know how they can access our services. And I guess what we're doing now is we're just we're in the process of trademarking our, our multi-agency model of service delivery and all of our programs with a view that maybe down the track we can work with other organisations around Australia to create similar centres like what we have in other areas. You know, I don't want to run multiple centres across Australia. I'm, I'm getting closer to retirement now. But, you know, if we can help more people, fantastic. At a local level, as I say, the councillor are very much on board. Women do come to us through other organisations who refer them to us. That happens a lot of the time. But we do have women just finding out about us through Google or through Facebook and making contact with us. A lot of the time it's word of mouth too. It's our survivors out there who will run into somebody who was a survivor and tell them about what, we, what we're doing. Is it hard not to want to go and set up other centres? Obviously you've only got so much capacity in what you're doing but you see the success that this is having and I understand that there probably is not something that's similar to this running around in Australia at the moment. So is it sort of that... You sort of look at it and think, God, it'd be nice to be able to have more resources yep. to open more of these up and Definitely. help more people. Definitely. And that's where if we can partner with other organisations, that would be fantastic. We did have the Federal Minister come to our centre in May this year and uh, she, you know, it was great to have her there. She sort of came in and we had a roundtable discussion with some other local DV organisations while she was there and she said, you know, this is, this is what we need to be looking at, something like this, where women don't have to walk through 27 doors. They just walk through one door and all the services are here for them. So, you know, I'm, I guess I'm feeling confident that the government now has, is starting to acknowledge both at a federal and state level that we need to be putting more emphasis on recovery and that long-term support. And hopefully, as a result, we will start to see more funding directed at recovery services. Because really for us, I mean, things are always precarious. We know we've got funding for our Pathways to Hope program until, you know, the middle of next year. But there's nothing beyond that at this stage. You know, we can only do what we can do. As I say, for the first two years, we were 100% volunteer. It's only really volunteer-based. It's only really been in in the last, sort of since mid-2021 that we've sort of really had, sorry, mid-2020 since we've, that we've had um, paid staff. And and we operate our whole centre and all of our programs. And actually, we have a centre on the north side as well now, I I must say. So we've got two centres in Brisbane, but we operate all of that on about the equivalent of just under three full-time staff. Wow. It goes to show you the under-resources that are allocated toward the sector. I mean, where do you do you have hope that the amount of money and the pool will increase so that we don't have to be taking it off each other but we can actually work together to collaborate and get more funding? 
Yeah, that's it's a really interesting point you make there because I guess one thing we have found is that there is that competition for funding. Mm. And, you know, my husband always – my husband said to me when we were starting up the charity, Carolyn, you know, it's – it can be quite cutthroat in the not-for-profit sector and I just said, oh, no, we're all working for the good of everybody and <laughs> now I, I see what he meant because everybody is fighting for the almighty, almighty dollar and they just want to do the best by their clients. What I'm, I guess I'm really hopeful about is that at the um, National Summit on Women's Safety when they made the final statement, they did acknowledge that, yes, we still need to be funding those existing services that receive funding, but we now need to be looking at other organisations as well and potentially some of those organisations that are more grassroots that are really working on the ground solidly with these women and acknowledge that they have a part to play as well and, and that we, you know, we should support them financially. That would be wonderful. You know, I lie awake at night wondering how I'm going to keep my staff on and they work well beyond what they're paid because they're so dedicated and so passionate and, you know, it's not a nine-to-five job, this type of thing. We know that our women may need us after hours and um, we're there for them as well as mu- as much as we can be too. Well, it's certainly, it's certainly challenging and, like you said, the people are overworked, underpaid, so resources are tight, so every last dollar and penny you can get and it sounds like you're certainly going out and getting some organisations to also help corporates and stuff to help want to play a part in, the, in this solution as well? Oh, most definitely. We have a wonderful organisation we've linked in just recently with and they came out and had a look at what we were doing and, you know, really bought into into our model and they're sponsoring another social worker to come on board for you know, several days a week next year, which is just incredible. That's going to take a huge load off, off our one social worker that we have at the moment. You know, but we're, we're also looking at other opportunities, I guess, to do new things as well. You know, we've got some wonderful philanthropists out there that are coming to us with ideas about, you know, how they might be able to help to support our women, particularly with some of those other pillars of recovery that, that we can't do because we just don't have the financial means. We've got other corporates who've had some great ideas about how they can work with us to play their part in, in uh, supporting women who are in abusive relationships at a community level and I'd love to be able to share some of those things now but I've actually, I'm sworn to secrecy but in the new year I think we're going to be able to make some really, really big announcements that again just, I guess, indicate that sometimes it's, it's, it's great to be able to think outside the box and that's probably one, one thing my husband says is the fact that we haven't received federal state government funding or recurrent government funding has given mm. us that opportunity to be really creative. We're not working with any guidelines yeah. and, and be really, really innovative. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. So, Carolyn, I guess w- where is your future heading? I know you said you're close to retirement, but, I mean, <laughs> have you got some unfinished business? What, Look, where are you at? I, you know, I'm still a few years away from retirement, but um, I guess, you know, having grandkids now, that's, that's sort of another priority for me. But something that's really come up for us in the last year, particularly after I met Sue and Lloyd Clark. I was put in contact with them by the Lady Mayoress of Brisbane City Council. I guess we were brought together because we both, our kids both grew up in the same suburbs, both my daughter and Sue and Lloyd's daughter. And as we found out just last year, actually, when my daughter's perpetrator was convicted of um, another incident, Hannah's ex-husband and my daughter's perpetrator actually knew each other and worked together. So there were similarities there we couldn't have believed. So after that happened, I sort of said to Sue, you know, we've got to get the, we've got to get the message out about, to young women about these signs to look out for, because Mm. these are 
like my daughter, like Hannah, these are professional, intelligent women getting caught up in these situations. So we started running domestic violence awareness sessions. We, the first one was for mums and their daughters and um, their teenage daughters, and that was really well received. And then with this year, we also introduced parents and sons as well. So we've been running those sessions during the year. Uh, we ran a couple in September. But after those sessions, we sort of thought, well, that's all well and good for the young people who are here. But what about the ones who aren't here? We need to get the message across to them. How do we do it? And so I, I sort of was talking to my husband about it and, you know, we decided, well, let's try and come up with an app. So I went to my IT consultants and said, do you think we could do an app of our DV awareness session? She said, yeah, sure. She said, just give me a storyboard. So that was about 10 weeks ago now. Gave her the storyboard and we're actually on the Apple Store now. Wow. Yeah, incredible. What's we the name of it? Uh, it's called Love and Learn. Okay. And it's it's an app that's designed for teenagers. It's highly interactive. It basically it has a it has a relationship quiz where we've embedded all of the elements of the teen power and control wheel and the teen and quality wheel. And uh, there's 40 behaviours in there, healthy and unhealthy. And they do this relationship quiz. It shuffles the behaviours around and it and it and it shoots out 20 behaviours that they have to answer yes or no to if they're seeing them in a relationship. And it gives a percentage at the end. The closer the percentage to zero, the more unhealthy your relationship is. The closer the percentage to 100, the healthier your relationship is. We made a cut-off of 60%. If you get 60% or below, you cannot go anywhere else on the app unless you click on the Find Help button there below. Mm. And that then takes you to helpful tips if you're in a relationship or if you know someone who's in a relationship or if you think you're using these behaviours in a relationship and then it also goes to helpful numbers, so all of those important, you know, 1-800-RESPECT, Men's Line, Australia, etc. And it goes to um, helpful links like to The Line, Our Watch, any number of those other websites that can give young people more information. We'd also, we also have the Teen Parent Control Wheel and the Teen Equality Wheel on there for them to see. Yes. And it also on the app has um, scenarios that we've filmed with teenagers so we, one of our survivors who's, who's been with our organisation for a number of years, her children actually received bravery awards after her DV incident six years ago. And so they're, they're quite a bit older now, but they're all very accomplished actors. And so they said, yes, we'd love to come on board. So we had them actually film scenarios of young people enacting healthy and unhealthy relationship behaviours and so that's another little quiz that, that young people can do on the app. And then we also have videos of three teen DV survivors talking about their experiences. And we have at least a half a dozen at the moment videos of DV advocates. And most of them are quite young people talking about, you know, why it's important that, you know, we, we address respect in relationships, talking about healthy masculinity, toxic masculinity, talking about challenges for our marginalised groups. Mm. And we've got one more section, which is our Love and Learn Champs, and we're really hoping to get on board some of the high-profile people in our communities that young people look up to, whether they be sporting people, whether they be people from media, from arts, mm. just to share their own experiences of healthy and unhealthy relationships when they were teens. And also to, I guess, emphasise the importance of healthy and respectful relationships. So, yeah, we couldn't believe we had a we had a story on a national television show a couple of weeks ago. It had about one hundred and forty five thousand views. 
about 2,000 shares. We were getting comments from people overseas saying, could we have something like this here? So um, we've already decided in in 2022, we so it's on Apple at the moment. That's all we could do in in eight weeks. (laughs) That's all we had time to do. Early in the new year, we're going to create the Android version and then we're going to customise locations. So if a young person is in South Australia, they can click on South Australia and we'll, it'll bring up uh, l- yep. services in their in their area and and um, important numbers in their area. And then um, later on in the year, we've just put in for a grant now, we'd like to actually translate the app to several other languages as well because we'd love to reach our cold communities. We've tried to, with the, with the young people and with our DV advocates on the app already, we've tried to be really inclusive particularly having uh, those marginalised groups represented. And it's a very gender-neutral app as well. And that's one thing I think some people were worried about, but we've made sure that even in those teen scenarios, we have got some scenarios where it's actually the young female teen who is showing controlling behaviours towards the male. Well, I mean, it certainly sounds like you've got a lot going on, but a lot of meaningful, exciting stuff that's coming through. So watch this space. If people want to get in touch with you, Carolyn, how do we, how do they do that? What's probably, the yeah, the easiest way probably is through our website, website um, yep. au, And uh, that, that's probably some people contact us through our Facebook page as well. Yeah. But, you know, we're happy to talk to anybody at all who is interested in collaborating, finding out more about our programs because really at the end of the day, this has got to be a community effort. Mm. My organisation can't do everything. Other organisations can't do everything. But together we can all do something and that's what's going to help to, you know, hopefully eliminate domestic and family violence by the time my grandchildren are ready to, to enter into relationships. Well, it's certainly been inspiring listening to all the things that you've been up to and, and you've certainly achieved a lot in so little time. So congratulations for Thank that. Thank you. And really wish you all the best moving forward and uh, encourage people to get in touch if you can help or want to know more. But other than that, thanks very much for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me here. And just a bit of a shout out to my incredible team too. They're back up in Brisbane working while I'm here and it's a real team effort, as I say, yeah. just a very small team but um, all very, very passionate. No, as I say, we, we're all in it together. Well, thanks very much, Carolyn. We appreciate your time. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.